If you have your Bibles, I invite you, if you would, to take them out and turn them on and join me, if you will, in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, as we continue our look at this letter, which was most likely the very first that Paul wrote um, in his ministry, uh, though he had been ministering for quite some time. And we have been, uh, for several weeks, in a series that we have entitled, uh, Live Free, Set Free. And the reason for that is because that follows very much the pattern of Paul's letter. Paul spends the first uh, probably two-thirds of the book explaining the fact that we have been set free from ourselves and from our sin. And now we're in the section of the book where Paul is going to begin to give us some directives, some directions in which he now calls us to live that freedom out. I don't know when the first time it was that I, was, I saw this image, but I know that it is a popular cultural image that you and I have seen. I think maybe the first time that I saw it was on a Looney Tunes cartoon, where there was a character on Looney Tunes, maybe it was Sylvester the Cat, if that's his, is that his name? And Sylvester's trying to figure out whether or not he's going to eat Tweety Bird or whatever. And there on the cartoon comes Sylvester as he's debating this decision of whether or not he's going to, to eat the bird or, or be, be mean or whatever it is. What, what inevitably happens is he's debating it in his mind. Good Sylvester pops up on this shoulder, and Devil Sylvester pops up on this shoulder, and they begin having this conversation with him. One... Uh, coaxing him into evil and coaxing him into doing what he knows to be wrong, and the other one inviting him to be a good cat and to do the right thing. Maybe you've seen it in many different television shows or movies, but this notion of there being an internal struggle inside of each and every single one of us, on the one side a draw by our conscience to do what is good, and on the other side a draw by something deep inside of us to do what we know is wrong, is not merely just the felt experience of the world, it's the reality for each and every one of us. Scripture shows us, as we'll see in the verses that we're reading this morning, that there is a war being waged inside of our souls and inside of our hearts between the flesh and between the spirit, or between the flesh and between the spirit. And so what we see is that Scripture teaches is that sin is constantly leading us somewhere. Sin is leading us into self-centered lives, self-centered lives that devalue other people and then use them for our own ends. Paul wants to confront that tendency inside of every one of us because God intends something better for our lives. God empowers us for something better with our lives. In the verses that we're about to read, Paul calls each and every one of us to a victorious life, a victorious life over sin and over self, and that comes by completely surrendering to the will and the work of the Holy Spirit. Look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read down together through verse 25. Paul says, but I, uh, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, 
idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you again that all of your promises have come true. I say that with confidence, Heavenly Father, knowing that you experience time in a way that we do not. So all of the promises that we are still waiting to be fulfilled, they are fulfilled as they are yes and amen in Christ. Heavenly Father, one of the great promises that you have already proven to us is that you have not left us to this life alone. But instead, you have given us an incredible helper. One who indwells us, empowers us, convicts us, leads us, loves us, shields us, prays for us, who leads us in a life of godliness. And so I pray this morning as we focus on the power of the Holy Spirit over against the desires of our flesh, I pray, Father God, that you would bring conviction. Show us the ways, Heavenly Father, as we examine our lives that we are prone to the works of the flesh. Let us turn from them, repent of them, trust in Christ and Christ alone that he might bear the burden of the punishment that we deserve for them and that he might give us the life that we don't. And then in doing so, as we turn to Jesus Christ, let us crucify our flesh once again this morning and let us trust in the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, manifest your presence in our hearts and in our minds and in this moment that we might sense your leading and that we might, that we might remain sensitive to it even when we leave this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Again, as Paul here in these verses is calling us to live by the Spirit, the big point, if you will, the main idea, I think, of this passage of Scripture is that Paul is calling us into a victorious life where we experience victory over ourself and over our sin. And the way that we do this is by completely surrendering to the will and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, walking with Him, walking after Him, trusting in Him. And these verses, verses 13 through 15, actually kind of serve as an introductory paragraph, a subheading, if you will, that Paul introduces what he's going to be talking about, not only in the verses that we just read, but the verses that we'll examine over the next couple of weeks. Paul introduces in verse 13 the two main ideas or commands that he's going to break down in the verses that we're going to look at this morning and then also well into chapter 6. The first one of those commands is a negative command, something that we are, supposed to, we are not supposed to do. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The second part of that phrase in verse 13 gives us a positive command, something that we are supposed to do, namely, <coughs> through love, we are to serve one another. Now, we'll look at the serve one another next week, but this week, in the verses that we read, Paul is fleshing out this negative command, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Have you ever tried to walk a tightrope or walk a balance beam? 
And maybe you're, as you're walking across that balance beam, you're struggling because on either side there is danger. Either side there's the possibility to fall. You have one to your left and one drop to your right. And as Paul is writing to the Galatians, and as Paul is writing across all of his letters, he is addressing two dangerous diversions that we have a tendency to take away from a gospel-centered life. He's regularly addressing them, and to this point in the book of Galatians, the, the fall away or the diversion that Paul has been confronting is the danger of legalism, right? Paul is addressing... The concerns that have come up in these Galatian churches because there are some individuals who have come in and began preaching a false gospel. Namely, that the Galatian Christians needed to begin following the Old Testament law. And Paul has confronted the, the, the call of these false teachers to these Galatians to submit even to circumcision. And so Paul is addressing this legalism, this heart that attempts to do by my own work and my own effort what only God can do in his grace. And so Paul has been confronting this religious legalism, and he has been preaching grace. Namely, that by God's grace, you and I are completely freed from the law and from sin. We're set free from sin and its consequences. As I said several weeks ago, the person who deserves God's judgment and wrath has died with Christ. So there is no more wrath or judgment that is left for me if I am in Christ. Christ has taken all, all of my punishment for all of my sin, past, present, and future. And so Paul is calling them into this dependence upon grace to know that because of God's love and because of God's grace and because of what Jesus has done, there is nothing that I can do that is either going to disappoint God or separate me from his love because Christ has swallowed up everything. Grace properly understand, understood destroys legalism, a dependence upon myself. But if it's taken too far, the other drop-off, the other diversion, the other side of the balance beam that we can fall into, legalism on the one hand and license on the other. Licentiousness is this notion, well, I can do whatever I want. If that's what grace means, and Paul addresses this in the book of Romans, he anticipates that someone is going to hear his teaching on grace and say, well, if that's the case and God's grace abounds for me in my sin, then I should just sin all the more. I should just keep on sinning and then God gets to give me more grace. And so I get to live a life doing whatever I want, whenever I want. And the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, we have a tendency to hedge on, on preaching and teaching and talking about the beauty of true biblical grace. Because we're afraid that if we really preach grace, then people are going to think, well, I can do whatever I want. And the truth of the matter is that's one of the marks of biblical Pauline grace. Because every time that Paul preaches on grace, he anticipates that someone is going to misinterpret what he says and receive a license to go and sin. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, as I was preaching through chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, I talked about how we have a tendency to lay burdens upon new believers that says that you are saved by faith in Christ alone, and now the way that you grow up and are sanctified is you read your Bible, and you pray, and you show up to church, and you do this, and you stop sinning, and everything else. 
And I concluded that sermon with an illustration of a pastor that I know who had a very real-life experience where two ladies came to faith in Christ in his church. And those two ladies were employed as strippers in a local dance club in, in strip club in Louisville. And over time, as this church began to love on these two young ladies, God in his grace removed them from that place and from that livelihood into a more godly lifestyle. And there are some who would hear that and say, well, then I guess you're saying that we should never actually confront sin, and that we should never call anyone to repentance. Instead, we should just sit back and let go and let God work on people's hearts. But that's not at all what Paul says. That's not at all what the Bible says. Instead, the Bible calls us to reject both legalism and attempt to do in my own strength what only God can do, and therefore trust in the Lord, while also rejecting a life of licentiousness in which I just do whatever I want. Because what Paul says is we're not freed from sin to sin. We're freed from sin to live as Christ has shaped our lives, and to live a Christ-shaped life that's led by the Spirit. There is a call. He says right here, don't use your freedom as an excuse for sin, an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, we are to reject that tendency. Verses 16 through 18, Paul then talks about how the Spirit and the flesh are at war with one another. They are opposed to one another inside of us, and that's where we get this notion of this war between the angel and the devil that is inside of us that's constantly coaxing us to do one thing or the other. The presence of the Spirit inside of every single Christian is there with a purpose and a mission. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is that the Holy Spirit is a down payment, a guarantee of our salvation until the time when all of God's promises are fulfilled. If you were to take your Bible and you were to turn one page over, you would find Ephesians. And Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God's glory. Paul talks about this tension between the Holy Spirit being this guarantee of the future fulfillment of all of God's promises, but there is this word there, until. There's a waiting period where there is this tension between the down payment of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the reality that we still exist in a world that is fallen and broken because of sin and because of our sin. And so there is this struggle where Paul, there's this question is what Paul says here. What does he mean that the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other, verse 17, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do? And there's a lot of debate that's around there, but I think that it's not an either or, it's a both and. On the one hand, your flesh is kind of like a snake with its head cut off. It's dead, it just doesn't know it yet. And it's still flailing around and causing a whole bunch of problems. And that head will still, you know, bite and could potentially poison you and kill you. And so the, the flesh, that sinful self inside of you, is waging war against the Spirit to keep you from serving the Lord as you could and as you would if it weren't there at all. But praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit is stronger than the serpent. Amen? And the Holy Spirit is there to prevent us, to keep us from ever 
going back to the place of being enslaved to sin again. The Spirit prevents you from doing all that you would want to do. The Spirit is there to convict you and keep you from living a life of license and sin. The Spirit is there to serve as a guardian and a guardrail, a new one, until such time of all, as all of God's promises come true. So then Paul launches into verses 19 and following where he gives us an objective standard by which to live our lives. He says, hey, the works of the flesh are obvious. They're evident, verse 19. And he begins to list these obvious works of the flesh. And the works of the flesh that he lays out, there's about 15 of them, and they can be grouped in four major groupings. The first one is sexual sin, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. There is a giving over to the flesh, literally, and the fleshly desires of lust and sin. Sexual immorality there is the broad term that encompasses all variations or all uh, diversions away from God's perfect plan and the biblical ethic of sexuality. God designed sex as a good gift to draw us out of our individualism and into an intimate and a vulnerable relationship with someone else. And it's out of that intimacy, vulnerability, that then new life is created. When we violate that in any direction, whether it be because we engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, before marriage, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual sin, whether it be any of that sexual perversion, pornography, lust, abuse, any of it, it's a violation of the biblical principle of biblical sexuality. It leaves us, he says, impure. And it leads us, this idea of sensuality there that's translated in the ESV is this notion of I lose all of my restraints. There's nothing that's there. So sexual immorality leads then to this spiritual impurity that then results in this removal of every single barrier whatsoever. The next section is idolatry and sorcery, which are worship, God-related See, it's always our tendency, according to Romans chapter 1, Paul says that our sinful tendency is always to reject God as he has revealed himself to us, and instead we create gods in our own making. And so we look to the creation to explain our existence. We look to the creation to empower our existence. Idolatry is the creation of anything less than God to be worshipped in the place that only God or, should, or belongs. An idol, brothers and sisters, is anything in your life that competes with your affection for God. Write it down. It's the most basic definition of an idol. Anything that competes, not takes the place of, they can take the place of, anything that competes with your affection for God is an idol, and it must be destroyed. And we can turn anything in the creation into idols. We can turn our career into an idol. We can turn our family into an idol. We can turn our church into an idol. I can turn my ministry into an idol. We can look to the creation to attempt to explain our existence. Sorcery is an attempt then to manipulate the things of the earth, the things of creation, to accomplish what we want. 
The underlying root word that we see sorcery or witchcraft, however it may be translated, is actually the word that we get our idea of pharmacy or pharmacology from. Because if you go to ancient witchcraft, there are always poultices and potions and things that are used and manipulated to take from creation and draw from creation a power to accomplish something in my life. If I drink this potion, I will become wealthy. If I, if I take this poultice, then I will fall, be, have someone fall in love with me. It's an attempt to manipulate or draw from the world what only God can give us. The next and the biggest section all talks about relational issues. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. In there, we see the breakdown, this self-centered life of sin that we're all drawn to will inevitably lead me to use and abuse those that are around me so that I can get my way. And when I don't get my way, what am I going to do? I'm going to lash out. There's going to be strife. I'm going to have bursts of anger. I'm going to begin posturing and positioning myself and, and, and taking the road of politic to create rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. The words that are underneath that are all words that are drawn from the political sphere in which people are positioning themselves and creating factions that they can then turn into places of power or sources of power as they control the group. That never happens in the church, does it? People who want what they want, and so they begin manipulating and pulling and, and pulling together their own little entourage or their, their little voting block. Because in a congregational nature, brothers and sisters, and we believe, and I believe, that Scripture teaches that the clearest and most biblical form of church governance is congregationalism, where the congregation decides and votes and moves forward. And when that is the case, it is an atmosphere that is ripe for manipulation. If our hearts are not in the right place, as we begin politicking and positioning ourselves, we're seeing that take place at the national level of our convention of churches in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. And God says that that is atrocious. It is a work of the flesh. And then he ends with drunkenness and orgies and things like these. Giving way to something that wipes away, washes away, that, that numbs my experience, or giving away to... to group parties and, and things that are works of the flesh and that are evil in the sight of the Lord. He says, and issues an incredible warning, that those who do such things, and here's the key about this, this is not just one and done kind of a deal. The tense that is there in those who do such thing is the idea that those who make this a practice of their life, this is their lifestyle, is a mark that they are of the flesh and not of the Spirit, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a warning to us, brothers and sisters. But beyond that, and in contrast to these works of the flesh, okay, notice how Paul has been addressing the legalism, right? And so he talks about the work, uh, an attempt to, of, the, of the Galatians and the attempts of these false teachers to work for God's approval, to work for God's salvation, to work for God's affection and favor, right? And he now says the works of the flesh are all of these things. But then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, Works is plural, and works is based in man effort. Fruit is singular, and fruit is something that can only be cultivated. It cannot be accomplished. You can't force a tree to bear fruit. You can do all you want. 
The, the fruit has to come naturally, and, and it's a mystery to us. As even Jesus talks about the, the principle, not of the sower and the soils, but the sower and the seed. And the farmer goes out, he says, and he sows the seed, right? And he leaves it there, and then by the miracle of God's grace, that seed comes to life and bears fruit. And he doesn't understand how it's able to do that, but he trusts in the Lord. And so in comparison to the works of the flesh, the strivings of the humanity that lead to divisions and dissensions and brokenness and the breakdown of relationship and community, there is this fruit that comes from the Spirit. And the first one, the one that governs all of the others, is the utmost rule of love. Unconditional, consistent, faithful love. Joy. Joy is intimately related to grace. The Greek word for joy is kar. The Greek word for grace is charis. There's a receipt of God's grace knowing that there is nothing that I can do in my life and nothing that can happen to me in my life that is going to separate me from the love of God. Knowing that means that whatever my circumstances are, whether it be painful or whether it be successful, whether it be difficult or whether it be easy, I can know that God's grace abounds for me and that is a source of joy in my life. Peace. Knowing all of that means no matter what the circumstances may be, I can be at peace. And since I am at peace, I can be one who makes peace. Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Not peacekeepers, peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the ultimate peacemaker as he came, as he died, as he bore the punishment for our sins. He made peace between man and God at the cost of his own life. Patience. Knowing that God's in control and he's done everything that is necessary, I can be patient in my circumstance. I can be patient with others. I can be patient and wait upon the Lord because he's God and I'm not, right? Kindness and goodness. You can't separate those two. They're intimately tied together. It carries over that same notion. Kindness is a sympathy. Kindness is a generosity. It's when we see something and we respond to it. Goodness is an uprightness of life that shows itself out in our lives. Gentleness. We need to reclaim the notion of biblical gentleness. We live in a macho, masculine world where gentleness has been lost. And gentleness is seen as weakness. But in reality, the most biblical definition of gentleness is strength under control. Because Jesus Christ was the most powerful being in all of existence, amen? And yet he controlled that. He contained that, that he might be gentle and compassionate and that he might endure even the cross. And then there's that last notion of self-control. We saw earlier that as we give way to sexual immorality and purity, sensuality is the removal of every barrier and such that I do what I want all of the time regardless of the consequences. <clears throat> a life lived in the Spirit, by the Spirit, with the Spirit is a life that is marked by self-control. An ability to walk within the bounds that God has placed, trusting that the boundaries that God has put there are not to keep something from me, but to ensure my safety and my goodness and the goodness of my life. And then he ends in verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Jesus 
We see sin, right, is, is the tendency to lead us to a self-centered, selfish life that uses other people for our own gain. But over and against that, all of these fruit of the Spirit, we see them perfectly embodied in Jesus Christ, who defeated sin by selflessly loving and serving others to the point of his own death. He didn't use others to get what he wanted. He laid his life down to give away to others what was rightfully his. Do you see the radical difference between the lusts of the flesh and the works of the flesh and the heart of Jesus Christ and the fruit of the Spirit? The mark of those that are in Christ is that we have crucified our flesh. If there was ever anyone who had the right to bend others to his will and accomplish his purposes through power and control, it would have been Jesus. After all, he was God incarnate, right? Who in the universe is there that is more powerful than God? Jesus is the one by whom and through whom all things were made, John chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus had the right of creator over his creation, and yet he chose to serve instead of enslave. There was nobody who had a higher moral right, as Jesus Christ was the height of moral perfection and divine goodness. If there was anybody who could have ruled perfectly, it would be Jesus, who has divine insight and power and omnipotence and omnipresence as he lives this perfectly good and loving and kind life. And if we combine that with his wisdom and his insight and his foresight, who could have been a better king than Christ? And yet Jesus didn't grasp the throne. Instead, he went to the cross where he laid down his life. He didn't choose an earthly realm. Instead, he chose to die that he might defeat death and sin and be raised again as the rightful universe, not of the earth, but of all of the universe. And that he might bring us into fellowship with the Lord and raise us up as sons and daughters of God, that what is his might be ours. And he now sends his spirit to indwell us, that we might be empowered to turn from the works of the flesh and to live lives that follow after the example of Christ in his selflessness, in his sacrifice, and his service. And living in the power of Christ and independence upon the Holy Spirit, this passage of Scripture is very encouraging in many ways, but I want to focus just really briefly on three ways that these verses encourage us to live humbly. First, they encourage each and every one of us to be aware of the conflict. Be aware of the conflict within yourself and within others. We're wage- There's a war that's waging inside of every single one of us. There's no reason that it should ever catch us off guard. We can't go to this place where we assume I'm in Christ and therefore sin has no hold on me and so I am free to do everything. There is no power. There is no struggle. There is no anyone else. The Bible says right here very plainly that even inside the heart of a Christian there is a war that exists between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. And so we must live constantly alert and aware of the conflict that's going on in our own hearts so that we are not caught off guard. We must live alert to the reality of our own propensity towards sin that we might stand fast in the Spirit against it, in prayer, and be prepared. I was a pastor at the Tennessee Baptist Convention just recently who was talking about the notion of prayer. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, as he, as he teaches us to pray, when he talks about temptation, does he teach us to pray? When does he teach us to pray about temptation? Before it happens. But most often, when do we pray about temptation? 
after it's happened and we've given in and we need mercy and we need grace and we need to ask for forgiveness. Instead, we need to wake up recognizing that we are about to walk onto a battlefield. When we step out of our bed, we step into a battlefield and we need to spend some time in that moment calling out to the Holy Spirit to lead us, guide us, protect us, and keep us from temptation. But we also don't need to just focus on the battle that's inside of ourselves. We need to realize that there's a battle going on inside of others as well. And so it shouldn't shock us when they mess up. So much of the hurt that Christians cause other Christians is when we live with this expectation that you be perfect. And when you fail to live up to our expectations, we look down on you and we treat you poorly. When in reality, we understand that there is a battle going on in your life that you are not able to win on your own, we aren't shocked and disappointed when people mess up. Nor should we be shocked and disappointed when somebody who's not even a Christian cusses in front of us. <gasps> why, how, why would you expect anything else? So when we understand, I know that it sounds counterintuitive, but when we understand that there is sin inside of every single one of us, we are then able to respond with grace when somebody sins, when somebody falls. And we'll see more next week. It drives us to compassion and to love for that person, not to aggression. You will never be able to legislate, compel, or beat sin out of anyone, brothers and sisters. We can only love and lead them and show compassion, and that is what draws them by the Spirit out. Second, First, we need to be aware of the conflict within ourselves and with others. Second, we need to be constantly examining both our conduct and our character. Paul gives us a pretty objective list that we can compare ourselves. And we can be looking into our lives. We can be examining, am I someone who is given to fits of anger? That's not just merely a learned behavior and because of my Irish bloodline or whatever it is. No, that's sin inside of you that needs to be crucified. My tendency to want power or control or prominence or wealth or any of these other things. My tendency to give way to my own sexual lusts and desires. My own uh, tendency to, to shrink up and give way to my insecurities and my weaknesses. All of those things are evidences of sin and a failure to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to turn from those things. We need to crucify them. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. There's a past tense notion to that. Paul has already said earlier, I have been crucified with Christ, past tense. There's a notion in the life of every single believer that the person that deserves God's judgment and wrath, as I've already said, is dead in Christ, crucified with Christ. Here's an interesting thing about crucifixion, brothers and sisters. It takes a long time. It's not a bullet to the brain. It's not a shock of electricity. It's not a lethal injection. Crucifixion could take days and weeks. So that we have crucified the flesh. We, the power of sin in our lives is broken. But the truth of the matter is, like I said earlier, it's that snake with its head cut off, still flailing and messing all kinds of things up. We need to turn from that. We need to trust in Christ. We need to look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to find those places in our lives that are characterized by the works of the flesh and turn from them and turn to the Spirit and prayerfully seek and ask for Him to cultivate in us His fruit, the evidence of His presence, love 
and joy and peace and patience. So that when I am tempted to fight and scream and yell and divide to get what I want, I can instead pray, God, would you kill that in me? And by the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit, would you transform it into patience to wait for you to give me what I want in, or what I need in your time? Would you, would you replace it with love for these that are standing opposed to me? Would you replace it with kindness and a compassion? We can seek God to do in us what only he can do. Last thing, we need to depend upon the Spirit for our life and our growth and godliness. Four times in these verses, Paul's directed us to depend upon the Holy Spirit. He commands us to walk by the Spirit in verse 16. He commands us to be led by the Spirit in verse 18. And he commands us to, to live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit in verse 25. The Holy Spirit is the most neglected person of the Trinity and the church today. We're so terrified of being too charismatic and, and going off the deep end with things that we have neglected the Holy Spirit, the one who is our helper, the one who is our comforter, the one who is our battle buddy in the midst of all of this, the one who is our strength, the one who is our comfort, the one who is our guide, the one who is our friend, the one who indwells us and is constantly there to lead us in the way everlasting. Let us not be so focused on the second coming of Jesus Christ when we will finally be in the presence of our King that we neglect the presence of the Spirit in your heart right now. Because Jesus himself said to the 12 disciples, it is better that I go away so that the Spirit may come. So how dare we neglect him? And all of the commands that Paul has given to us, there is a relational component to this in which we are to follow after him, in which we are to walk beside him, in which we are to be led by him and keep in step with him and to live dependent upon him because the Holy Spirit is here as the perfect and great helper because by the presence of the Spirit in our lives we can know that though sin might be alive in a sense in us and fighting and keeping us from doing all that we could or would do for the Lord if sin wasn't there the Spirit is more powerful than our sin. And the Spirit's presence in our life is the guarantee that you will never, if you are in Christ, never be enslaved to sin again. If you're in Christ, then the one who is the source of power and guarantee of victory isn't merely on your side. He is inside of you. And he is stronger and he is more powerful than your sinful tendencies and desires that are there. And so when you're in that position and you have that battle going on in your mind where you think that you've got the devilish voice in you on one shoulder and you've got the spirit on the other shoulder, it's not a 50-50 battle. That devilish voice has no power for those who are in Christ. But the spirit has all power. And when we're led by the Spirit, we can know that we're freed from our selfish desires and we're freed to show love to others in the name of Christ. But what about those that aren't in Christ and don't have the Holy Spirit? And the reality is those individuals 
If you are here and you are not in Christ, surrender to Jesus Christ, then the Bible says right here in these verses that you are a slave to sin and must heed the warning that Paul gives in verse 21 that says you will not inherit the kingdom of God unless you turn from yourself and your selfishness and your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ because the reality is listen to me very closely whether you're here in this room or you're online every single person listen to me you cannot win the fight against your sin you cannot win the fight against your flesh against your anger against your lust against your envy against your addiction against your insecurity against any of it you don't have the power It is stronger than you are. It enslaves men and women. It has since the beginning of time and the fall in the garden. But there is one who is more powerful. There is one who has done everything necessary for sin's power to be broken in your life, who will set you free, that you might now live free if you will just surrender. The answer isn't fight harder. The answer isn't be better. The answer isn't do better. The answer is to stop and trust and surrender and believe in Jesus Christ to accomplish for you what you can never accomplish for yourself and receive from the Lord the victory that you desperately need. That's the ultimate battle and the invitation to anyone who is in this room today or watching online to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and receive the victory over sin. But maybe you're here and you are in Christ and you have been giving control to your flesh for far too long. And the answer for you today is to turn from yourself, to turn from your sin, cry out to Christ for forgiveness, trust in him, to cultivate in you what all of your efforts and strivings will never cultivate and accomplish in your own strength. Would you go to him? Would you cry out in confession and repentance that he might set you free, that you might live free, even beginning now? Would you take a minute and go before the Lord? Bow your heads and close your eyes and pray. Ask the Lord to guide you In any one or all of these steps, ask the Holy Spirit to examine your conduct and your character and reveal to you the ways that you have been surrendered to the flesh instead of to the Spirit and to lead you in confession and a turning away from it. Ask Him to reveal to you the ways that you are living blind to the ongoing struggle in your life for the hearts and lives of others. Ask Him to make Himself real to you in a way like never before, that you might know what it is to live in a relationship with him and his spirit and depend upon him forever. Spend some time in prayer and I'll close this in a moment.